listeners, welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Vittoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I also touch base on political movements, gender politics, and much more. But I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today. The good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and sea grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and would love to show your support, reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at Finding History Podcast. Welcome back, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and today I'm going to talk to you about the life of Arthur of Brittany. Arthur was a medieval prince that went missing and whose disappearance has remained a mystery ever since the 13th century. Arthur had a very short life, so this episode will mostly be me discussing the lives of his family members, who were the early Plantagenet and Angevin rulers. The Plantagenets were the longest ruling family in English history, and I think they ruled for, I want to say, 300 years, maybe a little bit more, and they were known for their ruthlessness. I mean, these guys were rough. And there were even rumors that the family line had a demon for an ancestor, in which Plantagenet rulers delighted in this rumor. Richard I, known as Lionheart, who I will discuss further, used to say, from the devil we came, and to the devil we shall go. The Angevin Empire, and I think I'm saying that correctly, I know it's a French word, so, but I'm pretty sure it's Angevin. Uh, so that refers to the royal order of kings of French origin that ruled England from the 12th and 13th centuries. Uh, the founder of the House of Plantagenet was Empress Matilda's husband, Geoffrey Count of Anjou from France. The Plantagenet, uh, the name, came from a yellow broom blossom that Geoffrey would wear often, and the French name for it is a planta jeunista. Not sure if that is like new French or old French. It could be old French. You know, in my research, I kept running across uh, one of the numerous dialects of uh, France during the Middle Ages, so that might not be a modern translation, but... It is what I found. It was Jeffrey's family that um, I believe started the room, the demon rumors, uh, claiming that his great great grandfather married a beautiful woman who turned out to be a demon, giving birth to three boys, all of which had demon blood. Now, it's always a woman who is the demon, the temptress, the disobeyer, because this is medieval Europe, and we equate womanhood with evil. Now, I must admit, because I'll keep it real with this podcast, uh, that I did not know English ruling French territory monarchs had an actual name. I mean, I think I've said it before, English rulers were very French and vice versa. I mean, just look at each of their policies and the constant intermarriage of royal and noble families. They were absolutely intertwined in their existence. Uh, but I always just called them Franglish, which is, is definitely a word I made up. 
And I use Franglish to describe my own fluency in the French language, where it's just kind of like this weird hybrid of English-French intermingling Franglish. Uh, but yeah, glad that it has a name, and I'm pretty sure it's Angevin, uh, because it makes it a lot easier to describe. Arthur was the grandson of Eleanor of Aquitaine, one of the most infamous women of the medieval world. Now, I could have said Arthur was grandson to Henry II of England, but show of hands, how many of you are super familiar with Henry II? Eh, sort of, kind of, maybe a little bit. Well, show of hands, maybe a couple of you are. Um, yeah, thought so. Uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine is just clearly a more recognizable name. Eleanor of Aquitaine could easily have her own episode, and she does, by many, many, many other podcasters who do a fantastic job detailing the medieval soap opera that was her life. She inherited the Duchy of Aquitaine when she was a teenager, making her a very wealthy teen. She went on crusade, she was Queen of France before she was Queen of England, and she definitely left an impression on the world, as we're still talking about her some 800 years after her death. Personally, I have complicated feelings about um, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Granted, I have uh, skimmed the surface of her own history, and trust me, there's so much to absorb and learn. Uh, but what I found was a similar pattern of uh, upholding men, regardless of how wicked they may be. And I often find this behavior with so many other female monarchs. And I'm here, you know, I'm here to study the patterns and actions of people in the past and how the world we know today was shaped. It would be negligent not to point out the behavior these well-loved wealthy women exhibited and how we see the same action mirrored throughout the ages. With that said, I understand the time is different. The world is different, and some might consider this analysis I'm making to be an unfair one. But with all due respect, I don't think it is. What we learn and pass down is what future generations carry and perpetuate. It simply can't be dismissed as a different time and a different tune. Eleanor truly had a wild-ass life, though, and I would be interested in reading more about her. I am especially curious about her time on Crusade, so if anyone has any more information or resources um, on that time of her life, please send them my way. I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, she was also said to have had many affairs, and I am fully supportive of all women getting their fuck on, if that is their choosing. And there's so much shame around sex and women, and don't get me started on the history of that. I have always had a soft spot and interest in the Middle Ages, ever since I was a child. This affection especially came out when I was researching the Bavarian queer mystery, Ludwig II, who was enamored with tales of courtly love and Germanic troubadours. I believe they are referred to as Minnesinga. I fell down the rabbit hole of medieval fables, and I didn't want to come back. To me, this is something Ludwig and I both shared, a genuine affection of the Middle Ages though I do feel he romanticized it a bit more than I do. If you haven't checked out that episode, or I should say those episodes, as I did a two-part series, check them out at your leisure. 
Ludwig was indeed a wild monarch. Now, I was low-key familiar with the story of Arthur of Brittany in a passing sense. I think I first actually heard of him when I was reading about Arthur Tudor, another ill-fated Arthur, though he died by disease and not by being shivved, or so we're told. Arthur was the eldest son of Henry Tudor and older brother of Henry VIII. He died when he was 15, which is the same age we assume Arthur of Brittany had passed away. Though to be fair, there are some reports that say he died when he was 16 or 17, but I think it was probably closer to 15, 16 years old. The name Arthur has significance in English history with King Arthur, who was fabled to bring peace to England and just be a noble, sexy king. Uh, so many monarchs claimed Arthur as an ancestor, even though no concrete evidence supported his existence. The Tudors were one of those families that claimed him as an ancestor, but they also had Welsh, uh, Welsh roots, So, um, which is, I think Wales is where they think King Arthur might have came from. Uh, there are a lot of theories with that, though, so who knows. Um, in the case of Arthur Tudor and Arthur of Brittany, the name was more or less a curse. I thought the subject of Arthur and his family would make an intriguing episode topic, as my Princes in the Tower episode has received the most plays of all of my recordings. Yay! I can't begin to tell you how ecstatic I am that you all are into unsolved medieval murders just as much as I am. If you haven't listened to it, please check it out. Tell your friends, tell your mom, I discuss the events that lead up to the disappearances, I name a suspect, and I drag a monarchy for filth. It's a grand old time. Now this story is sort of similar to the one of the York princes in a sense that Arthur was in the line of succession and the untimely death of his father, Geoffrey, put him even closer to the throne than before. All eyes were on the newborn prince. When a boy is born into the house of Plantagenet, it's like, how do, how do I explain this? Um, oh, it, it's like that scene in Twilight New Moon. Now, don't act like you haven't seen Twilight and don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Like, it's trash and we all like to roll around in it, just like trash pandas, okay? So anyways... The scene I'm referring to, in case you don't know, is uh, when it's Bella's birthday and she gets a paper cut opening a present. Now, before she can act, uh, the blonde dude, oh my god, what's his name, Jasper, is lunging after her like chicken enthusiast when a new chicken sandwich comes out at Popeye's. And the rest of the vampires are just kind of staring at her with that same enthusiasm, but with a bit more restraint. It's a bad situation to be in, and that's exactly what it was like to be a newborn in the house of Plantagenet. I have heard many, many times that children just were not viewed as being children in medieval times, and that childhood is more or less a concept that came about in the Victorian era. Um, I have not explored this topic much, so I'll just leave it at that, but my vague understanding is childhood was something that was viewed as a privilege, and only few could have one, and you still see this today. In medieval times, and well through a lot of history, uh, children were expected to work at a young age. In wealthy families, though, children were political tools. 
Another girl born was another dowry, and potentially another spy in a distant court. Another boy born was a potential threat. It's super odd to me, at a time when infant mortality and death in childbirth was very high, that for the most part, little fucks were given about their offspring. You really see this in their actions and motives and child marriage. I mean, come on. People will say one had to get married young because you died young. Life expectancy was shorter. And it was, but marrying children off was a political move. It was not about living life to the fullest and fastest. Give us an heir at 12, even if it kills you, so we can have a chance to continue to have power and wealth. Now, I am going to issue a content warning with this episode. I will be talking a lot about violence today. Violence towards children, England's disgusting history of anti-Jewish violence, and I will be mentioning rape. Just a whole spectrum of violence today, which, let me tell you, I've only read a tiny bit of England's history of anti-Semitism, and it is a difficult read. Um, when researching medieval Europe, it comes up so much, and while I won't go into too much detail about it, I, as I don't really think that I'm the person who should be the one discussing it, um, I think to avoid mentioning it is negligent. Now, I mentioned earlier in this episode, will, um, or that this episode will mostly focus on Arthur's family, as his life was very brief, and we do not know much about it. But familiarizing oneself with his family and this timeline will give you will give you all an idea of the kind of world he was born into. There are a few Henrys and a couple of Eleanors, but I will do my best to distinguish them. Now prepare yourself for the tragic tale of Arthur of Brittany and Plantagenet Demons. Arthur was an Aries, as he was born on March 29th in the year of our Lord, 1187. I'm not religious, I just really like how that sounds. Arthur was born about five months after his father, Geoffrey's freak death during a jousting tournament. Apparently, Geoffrey was trampled to death, and at his funeral, the King of France, the possible bisexual, Philip II, threw himself on Geoffrey's coffin. I'll touch more on Philip in a minute, but trust me, it's juicy. Medieval chronicler Gerald of Wales described Geoffrey as a hypocrite in everything, a deceiver and a dissembler. Geoffrey was also non-religious and would ransack churches in order to fund any potential uprisings he may have whim to. Arthur was born near the end of his grandfather Henry II's life. Henry had insisted the boy be named after him, but Arthur's mother, Constance of Brittany, had the final say and insisted that he would be named Arthur. Medieval France was home to a number of duchies, and duchies were uh, a medieval country, territory, or domain ruled by a duke or duchess, likely a duke. Uh, the ones of medieval France included Normandy, Burgundy, Brittany, and Aquitaine. The English had a lot of control over much of France, and as stated earlier, early Plantagenet rulers were Angevin, being ethnically French. Constance was the daughter of the Duke of Brittany, a man by the name of Conan. Conan had thrown a revolt against a few English nobles, and as punishment, Henry II said he could have no more land and forced him to resign. 
Constance was Conan's only child, so the land and titles went to her. However, Henry had motives for taking the dude's title and lands, as they always have motives. Now that Constance was a wealthy woman, she would marry Henry's son, Geoffrey. Thus the land became in his possession. However, when Geoffrey died in his freak accident, the title and land went back to Constance. Arthur also had an older sister by the name of Eleanor, who was known as the Fair Maid of Brittany. She was about two years old when her father died and was made a ward of her uncle Richard I and her grandmother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Under Angevin law, she would not be allowed to inherit the Duchy of Brittany and was not seen as a claimant to the throne of England. Therefore, her value in the eyes of the court would be for marriage negotiations. This was not the case for Eleanor, and I will touch more on that at the end of this program. In 1189, Henry II passed away, most likely from a bleeding ulcer. He never made it clear who he wanted his successor to be. He was not a well-loved dude, even though, uh, even to those who remained loyal to him in life were pretty much just like, fuck this guy, when he died. His children especially didn't care for their dad, and all but one revolted against him. Well, all his sons revolted against him, except the youngest, John. Henry even considered disinheriting all of his children at one point, because they all hated each other. Just imagine spending the holidays with blood relatives you dislike the most, and throw in some swords, and that was every Sunday dinner with the Henry and Eleanor family. Henry II is, in my opinion, best known for the women in his life. His mother was Empress Matilda, who should have ruled in her own right, but that's for another episode, which I plan to make. To keep it brief, just know that England, and to be fair, France, as well, did not like women and certainly did not want to allow them to rule freely. So Matilda's throne went to her cousin Stephen, and what followed was anarchy and various battles. Eventually, Henry was allowed to claim the throne for himself, but I think seeing his mother dealing with loss after loss motivated him to rule. And a few historians agree on this, that Matilda remained a strong influence in Henry, or a strong influence on Henry for his entire life. Matilda was a fascinating woman, and I don't, I'm not too sure why we don't see many portrayals of her in film or media. Um, I think England would be a different place, though, if women would have been allowed to inherit the throne and given positions of power from the get-go. This is, however, not to say that women ruling would be an end to overall violence. I am a fierce advocate for women in power and have always felt it deeply unfair that women were not given the opportunity to be kings in their own right. Yes, I meant king. But women in power does not mean an end to unfairness and an end to violence. There have been many queen consorts who have been just as ruthless as their male companions. Queen Mary I and Elizabeth I had very bloody reigns, but both women were perpetuating what they knew, and that was the patriarchy. If women rulers merely repeated the violence of patriarchy, upholding their sons and not their daughters, then they'd be no better than the kings that denied them. 
I would like to hope, however, that if England and other countries recognized women as being deserving of ruling and gave them positions of power, that the sort of toxic masculinity that meandered through the continent might have been nothing more than a dull roar. But we will never know what England could have been, since they were hell-bent on keeping women second to men. I do understand that part of why women were not allowed to inherit the throne was based on the church's belief in gender roles and what a woman's purpose was. A woman acting as a leader was her assuming the position of a man, and this act was sinful in the eyes of God. This is why Catholics went so hard against Elizabeth I. Well, one of many reasons. But riddle me this. Who was in charge of the church? Men. Therefore, it's misogyny all across the land as to why women were kept out of power, or I should say, denied a chance to find their power. Matilda's memory would serve as a cautionary tale for future kings, that producing male heirs was their top priority to avoid war, and that male offspring would be the ones to carry on the family line. Which is very stupid if you think about it. In the case of many kings of Europe, whether they had sons or daughters, it didn't matter. They still found dumb reasons to go to war. Eleanor was near 30 years old when she met the teenage Henry, who was not yet king. She had been married for 15 years to Louis VII of France. She was a very rich teenager when she got married, as her father passed unexpectedly, leaving her a shit ton of land and money. It was very common in medieval times for wealthy young girls and women to be kidnapped and forced to marry their captor uh, so they could be legally bound to their fortune. Eleanor was kept locked up for two years after her father's death to avoid any sort of stealing of her and her fortune while she waited for someone legit to marry. Which I gotta wonder, like, what the fuck? Um, without looking too much into medieval law, I don't know if the kidnapper would be allowed to remain married to their victim or what would happen exactly. I am assuming because this was very common that they would be allowed to remain married, but I don't know for sure. I saw this mentioned a lot in my research, and that is a big part of why Arthur's mother, Constance, could not remain single for long after her husband's death because plans were already set uh, to snatch her. Once a wealthy woman was single, the flies just swarmed around her. I mean, even Henry's brother, who was also a teenager at the time, tried to snatch Eleanor before she could meet Henry. I tried to find out more details on when Henry and Eleanor met officially, but I could not find anything concrete. Being Queen of France, Eleanor would have had a pretty good idea who Henry and his mother were, and would have familiarized herself with his timeline. I'd gather he would have done something similar as well. And, well, now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure Eleanor was the one who reached out to Henry first. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here, um, and some folks like super diehard Eleanor of Aquitaine fans might get totally mad at me, but I'm here to tell you, you can still like your favorite dead rulers and also critique the fuck out of them. Like, I promise you, they're not going to be bothered. They're dead. Henry was a ruddy, red-haired, messy-looking teen when he met Eleanor, a married woman who was intimidating and alluring. 
Henry had already seen a lot of the world and been familiar with matters of war and battle, and seen how his mother had to deal with just one defeat after another his entire life. I don't doubt that when he met Eleanor, he was just more or less enchanted. However, I have to wonder if Eleanor, perhaps, groomed Henry and had her eye on him for some time, like even before he was 18. Now, don't get mad at me here. I am willing to accept that I am reading into this from the perspective of an older millennial and maybe not the mind of a medieval person. Eleanor wanted out of her marriage with Louis for a while now and was looking for a successful way out that would still leave her rich and secure as fuck. She was, after all, Queen of France, but that had its limits. Being Queen of England and French territories would give her more access and more power. Eleanor was said to have a powerful influence over Henry, especially in their earliest years of marriage. She was said to have a certain power over her first husband, Louis, even though his affection for her was said to be a childlike affection. Perhaps she wanted a young king to groom to her liking. Again, I understand people got married young back then, but let's, let us not ignore the fact that that shit had multiple intentions. In a lot of cases, these marriages were unhappy. Henry's mother, Matilda, married his father, Geoffrey, when he was 15 and she was 25. They were not a happy couple, and from my understanding, this was kind of a forced union. Matilda did not want to marry someone so young, and having been previously married and an empress, she thought it was beneath her to marry a duke. Also, fun fact, Matilda herself was sent away when she was eight to, uh, to the German court to be raised until she reached the marriageable age of 12 to someone much older than her. Look, I am not saying that Eleanor of Aquitaine was a creep, but if she was a creep, she was not alone and learned from all the creep dudes in her life. Let's not ignore the fact that youth was viewed as desirable not only for the intention of offspring, but for control. The younger a bride was, the easier it was uh, to control them. As I mentioned in Matilda's case, it was common to send your daughters away to learn the customs of foreign land, which I don't know about you guys, but to me, this kind of just sounds like grooming. If you're unfamiliar with the term, grooming is when someone builds a relationship, trust, and emotional connection with a child or a young person so they can manipulate, exploit, and abuse them. You still see many people advocating for early marriage. Many evangelicals and far-right folks will push for people to avoid college and to settle down instead. Noble and royal men wanted a young bride for those reasons. Therefore, a powerful woman could also mirror that same behavior when selecting a new spouse. Now, maybe Eleanor was reaching out to Henry because it was either that or risk being kidnapped or stay in a terrible relationship. Henry's younger brother was not the only male to attempt a kidnapping once word got out that Eleanor was seeking an annulment from her first husband. Perhaps Henry was the only option here, but I made this podcast to question everything these folks did and to recognize patterns that continued in royal families for centuries that followed. 
Okay, now where was I? Uh, let me take a look at my notes real quick. You are still listening, right? Yes? Okay, cool. Once Eleanor received her annulment from the Pope, she set off to marry Henry. She had two daughters with Louis, who she ditched and remained distant with for the rest of their lives. Eleanor somewhat screwed them over when she did this. By leaving Louis, she took her fortune and land wealth with her. Therefore, her daughters could no longer have claim to it. If Eleanor had not been able to give Henry an heir, then her lands probably would have just gone to the the closest male relative rather than her daughters. Eleanor and Henry did conceive many children. They had five sons and three daughters. Their firstborn son was named William, but he passed away in infancy uh, due to a seizure. Next in line uh, was Henry, who was referred to as the Young King or Junior King. He had a mini coronation just to assert to the world that this was Eleanor and Henry's uh, heir which I'm not sure if this was an Angevin custom or what the origin was, but this sounds like a good idea to me. I'm not sure why it wasn't done more often, as it might save for future confusion, which always seemed to follow successions. In 1173, young King Henry fled to France, apparently to plot against his father and take the English throne. He couldn't wait for dear old dad to die, I guess. Eleanor was rumored to be actively supporting her son's plans against her husband, whom she was, at this point, estranged from. Since Eleanor was rumored to be supporting to usurp her husband, she was arrested and imprisoned for treason. She spent the next 16 years being heavily guarded and moved around from castle to castle to avoid any attempt to free her. I don't think any concrete evidence was ever found that she had been supporting um, an uprising against her husband, at least none that I could find. It is possible that Henry just wanted her out of sight so he could openly court his mistress, whom he referred to as his great love, Rosamond Clifford. Henry had many mistresses, but he had treated past liaisons more discreetly, but he flaunted Rosamond. Rumors circulated that Eleanor had Rosamond killed, but I doubt it. Not because I don't think she's capable, but at this point in history, a paper cut could kill you. After years of rebellion, young King Henry died of dysentery at the age of 28 in 1183. On his deathbed, he is reported having begged for his mother's release. Henry would allow Eleanor to be released from prison on special occasions, such as holidays. He would also allow her to resume some ceremonial duties as queen. What a gentleman. At this point, we have three sons that are left. Geoffrey, Arthur's dad, Richard, who is more general than king and a celebrated shithead in English and French history, and John, whose father jokingly called him Lackland because he ran out of land to gift unto him. Isn't being rich great? Richard was Eleanor's favorite child, and she supported his claim to the throne, even though he was younger than Geoffrey. I think Eleanor might have favored Richard because he looked like her. We do not have an account of how Eleanor looked. She was often described as being beautiful and full of grace, but no real descriptors, such as hair or eye color. Sometimes we can assume what a monarch looks like based on the appearance of their offspring. Richard was described as being very tall, unlike his father. 
with strawberry blonde hair, light eyes, and long limbs. We know from Henry's description that he did not look like that, so it is likely Richard was a mirror of his mother. I think this is the reason Henry favored John as well over the rest of his children. John was the mirror image of him. Their descriptions are almost exactly alike. John was described as being short in stature, the same wild red hair, and a powerful barrel-bodied chest, which I just love that description. So I think he saw a lot of himself in John, but alas, John was the youngest son, and Richard stood between him and the crown. However, we are forgetting one very important uh, claimant to the throne, someone who technically stood before them, and that was baby Arthur. Even though technically the crown should have passed down to Arthur, no one wanted a newborn for a king, one that left the kingdom in a tense and vulnerable position. And second, Richard was a full-grown man standing right there. Richard had the full support to inherit the throne, and his first act as regent was to free his mother from prison. Word must have gotten to Eleanor regarding her husband's death, as she had already bailed out of prison before Richard's men could release her. Now, I know I issued a content warning earlier, but I'm going to issue it again, because this next part is pretty bad. Richard's coronation happened shortly after his father's death, and it was held at Westminster Abbey on September 3, 1189. Tradition barred all Jews and women from the investiture. Some members of the Jewish community attended the event despite the ban, and brought gifts to the new king. Ralph of DeSetto, who was an archdeacon at St. Paul's Cathedral, said Richard's courtiers stripped and flogged the Jews and kicked them out of the event. Shortly after that, rumors circulated that Richard wished the Jewish population was killed and the people of London in turn attacked the Jewish communities. Many homes were destroyed by fires and several Jewish people were forced to convert. Many people died, including a well-respected Jewish scholar and French teacher who had just moved to London. His name was Jacob of Orléans. It is not known for sure if Richard gave the orders uh, for the population to be killed. However, by banning a group of people and an entire gender from witnessing a coronation, he sowed the seeds for violence to follow. The investiture, or coronation, was considered a holy event, as monarchy believed they were appointed by God to rule. Since women were considered dirty in the eyes of the church, they were banned, and European monarchy in general was anti-Jewish. Richard may not have specifically said to do this, but he was indeed an anti-Semite who encouraged violence. Mommy's favorite child was a monster. My personal opinion is he did say it in passing to someone close or made a joke about it. Violence always starts with jokes. Richard sort of kind of punished the rioters, according to Roger of Hoden, who wrote Gesta Regis Ricardi. Richard realized that these riots could destabilize his realm, so he ordered the execution of the ones who were responsible for some of the murders that occurred, and a handful of rioters who accidentally burned down a Christian home. 
Richard did not punish all participants, though, because there were so many rioters, and they all came from various classes, including the nobility and church officials. Can you imagine this? A world leader saying he can't punish everyone because there are too many participants? Like, what the fuck, man? One, you actually could hold everyone accountable for their actions. Money or no money, you just don't give a shit at all. Second, if half of London, which I'm assuming was half of London, were all active participants in this massacre, then you, sir, have a damaged realm beyond repair. Like, this is some real bone-deep violence here. Only a handful of people faced punishment and nobility, and church folks were excluded from that group. Richard distributed a royal writ demanding that people should leave the Jewish population alone. This was loosely enforced, and more riots followed throughout England, including the massacre at York. Now, I read a bit about the massacre at York, and I will not go into detail about it here, but it is truly horrific. I would like to add, though, that about a hundred years later is when England banished uh, Jewish people from the country, and it was a ban that lasted over 300 years. Completely and utterly shameful. And the monarch responsible for this uh, imposed banishment was, uh, let me see if I get this right, um, it was Richard's grandnephew, Edward I, a.k.a. Longshanks, the bastard from Braveheart. Richard did not spend a lot of time in England, maybe just six months of his entire ten-year reign. Richard spoke French and Occitan, which is thought to be Eleanor's first language. Most of his life as king was spent on crusade, in captivity, or defending his lands in France. Some contemporaries today regard Richard as an absent king and poor ruler. It is likely that Richard merely saw being king of England as another source of income and revenue to fund his armies. It is wild to me that some folks perceive him as being a pious king. You tell enough lies and you start to believe them, I guess. Richard could not be bothered with finding himself a wife, so he enlisted his mother to help him find one. The willing Eleanor found him a princess from the Kingdom of Navarre, which I believe is Basque territory, or at least pretty close to that. Um, it looked like it was on the coastal border of Spain and France. Berengaria of Navarre is the only English queen consort to have never actually stepped foot on English soil. Both Eleanor and Berengaria were to meet Richard in Cyprus, which Richard had recently occupied, taking it from the Byzantine Empire. They held a lavish uh, feast on the Mediterranean island, which I bet in medieval times was very beautiful. Like, sorry your husband sucks so bad, Berengaria, but at least you had a pretty wedding. This marriage resulted in zero children, obviously, or our ill-fated Arthur would have gone unharmed. Richard had only one illegitimate child that we know of. He likely had more as he was a known rapist, often boasting about taking women by force, especially while on crusade. Disgusting. I'm not sure where the myth that Richard was a noble king came from. The Victorians? Shakespeare? Who the fuck knows? This guy sucks. Maybe it was the fact that his nickname was Lionheart, or En Français, Que de Lyon. 
and that does sound romantic in a noble sense, but this guy was the worst. Lionheart, more like pile of garbage a lion peed on. I don't have the French translation of that. Remember when I said Philip II of France might be bisexual? Well, I got the deets on him and Richard. It is difficult to determine the motives of Philip and Richard's relationship. I feel like Philip II was very interested in Henry and Eleanor's large family, seeing as they controlled so much territory in France. Eleanor was also married to Philip's dad, Louis, once upon a time. Philip's two older sisters uh, were half-sisters, as they were Eleanor's daughters. They were all very closely related. That shit was messy. Roger of Hoverden, who was a chronicler of the 12th century, wrote, Richard, then Duke of Aquitaine, the son of the King of England, remained with Philip, the King of France, who so honored him for so long that they ate every day at the same table and from the same dish, and at night their beds did not separate them. And the King of France loved him as his own soul, and they loved each other so much that the King of England was absolutely astonished and the passionate love between them, and marveled at it. Some historians would conclude that the intimacy these two men shared was on a platonic level. Richard I's biographer and professor, John Gillingham, suggested that, that, that this was an accepted political act, nothing sexual about it. Diplomacy has always been intensely personal, if not downright physical. In centuries past, a wider range of body parts might come into diplomatic play. Medieval rulers routinely greet one another with a kiss, the biblically sanctioned kiss of peace. Richard's decision to share a mattress with Philip was a public demonstration of trust. I did a bit more digging on this act of diplomacy in sharing one's bed, and I did not find evidence of other rulers doing this. That isn't to say that no other rulers did. I just found no mention of it. Sleeping arrangements in this era were very personal. It was very common for multiple people to share one bedroom. It's like in today's world, where five people live in a one-bedroom apartment in major U.S. cities. In the case of royalty, monarchs never totally slept alone. They usually had an attendant that slept close by, and sometimes queens would have their ladies sleep on small cots near their bed. Sharing a room is one thing, but sharing one's own personal bed... I don't know, Mr. John Gillingham. I may be a perverted millennial, but that is a level of intimacy that, in all fairness, could be gay. We don't know what these two men said to one another, or did when no one was looking. Richard's relationship with Philip is not the only indicator he may have been queer. Richard was a ruthless leader, but he was known to make confession before battle. He would often confess to committing acts of sodomy. If you have listened to my first episode on homosexuality in medieval times, you may recall that sodomy in the eyes of Catholic Europe was anything that was not conventional baby-making cis-sex. Acts of masturbation, oral sex, and anal could be considered sodomy. Richard may have been asking for forgiveness on a broad level. He was a known rapist, but from what I found, 
not remorseful in regards to that. I believe the acts he was asking for forgiveness for were ones done with other men. I also kept coming across this one record of a hermit's 1195 warning that Richard needed to abstain from illicit acts, lest he fall prey to the same fate as the uh, denizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. Richard went to suppress a revolt, as kings do, and attacked a virtually unarmed castle. Richard was shot in the shoulder by a boy who claimed he did so, as Richard was responsible for the death of his family. According to legend, Richard let him go, and for the most part we are not too sure what happened to the boy, but I highly doubt the boy was let go. Other accounts say that the boy was flayed alive, as was custom at the time for high treason in France. The point of entry of the arrow was not what killed the king, but the gangrene that followed. He passed away on April 6, 1199. Richard was said to have died in his mother's arms, a monster cradled by his maker. Prior to leaving on crusade, Richard had named Arthur as his heir, and this made John furious. This is where the plot of Robin Hood comes from. John invaded England with the aid of Philip, and attempted to take the throne from Richard once he knew he was away. This was not successful, and initially Richard had John banished and took away most of his lands. But in 1194, Richard publicly forgave John, and despite John being 27 at the time, Richard claimed that John was a child who had evil counselors, and named him as his successor. This family is too much. Arthur was about 13 years old at the time of Richard's death. His French territories, with the exception of Rune, uh, initially rejected John as a successor, preferring Arthur. Now, I'm really bad with law, but I think I got this right. Under Norman law, the crown should pass to Prince John, but under Angevin law, the crown should have passed to Arthur. This resulted in clearly open conflict, as there was support for both contenders to the crown. John had the support of the English and his mother Eleanor, and Arthur has the support or had the support of French nobility and Philip II. Which let me just say for a minute, like Philip is like the snakiest of snakes. Like, you don't really know what side he's working for. He's just working for his own side. And really, this is kind of just like, like this family is just kind of a game to him. When a king dies in medieval Europe, urgency is the vibe. Everyone around court is scrambling for positions or running away to avoid persecution. And it is a very dangerous thing to announce when the king has died. That communication is strictly controlled to avoid any sort of uh, civil unrest or false claims to fortune. It is an intense time, and information may not be what it is today, but word got out fast. Arthur's mother, Constance, sent armed forces to defend the territories of Anjou and Maine to declare for Arthur. They nearly captured John, who was on his way to Normandy, but he just narrowly escaped. In May 1199, John made his way to England to be crowned at Westminster Abbey. A year after becoming king, 
John and Philip met to sign a Treaty of Le Goulet. I think that's pronounced like Robert Goulet. In this treaty, Philip recognizes John as King of England and abandons support for Arthur. In exchange, Philip would have legal claim to overlordship of John's French lands. This treaty also included clarifications of the feudal relationships that bound the monarchs. This is viewed more as a win for Philip and not for John. Upon this agreement, John earned another nickname, and that was Soft Sword, and many English chroniclers considered this a jab at John, and some say it was uh, because compared to Richard, John was not very intimidating, but John was scary in his own way. So it isn't a matter of John being nicer than Richard, because he wasn't. It could also have been seen as a jab to his masculinity. One thing is for sure, though, Philip did not share his bed with John, ever. Though, to be fair, because I did just say Philip was kind of a snake, um, he could have very well extended uh, the offer of his bed to John. I mean, we don't know. Philip had his hand in all sorts of uh, all sorts of cookie jars, so he could have really just been bisexual for sport. So let's see here. The signing of the treaty was in 1200, and we have three more years till Arthur goes missing. So what happened in the three years in regards to Arthur? Well, we do not have intimate details of Arthur, uh, what he was doing at the time at least. Uh, we only have events in which Arthur's name was mentioned or that he participated in. The terms of the treaty recognized that while Arthur was not a claimant to the throne, that he was a vassal for Brittany, and the two of them were regarded on friendly terms until Arthur's mother Constance had died in 1201, possibly from childbirth or maybe leprosy. Arthur was on his own now, and at this point the peace in France was dwindling. After his coronation, John was hard at work trying to annul, the annul his first marriage to a woman named Isabella, Countess of Gloucester. The two of them were able to get an annulment based on the fact that they were second cousins, both sharing the same grandfather, Henry I. Henry I had a lot of kids, like 20-plus illegitimate children that we know of, but most historians think he had a lot more than that. Anyway... He was able to get a quick annulment and already had his sights set on a new bride. In August of 1200, he married Isabella of Ungleme. Not sure if that is how one pronounces that, but let's go with it. Contemporary chroniclers argued that John had fallen in love with Isabella on sight. And she indeed got a lot of praise for her looks, and was sometimes referred to as Helen of the Middle Ages. This is quite gross, though, as I read varying accounts of how old Isabella was at the time of marriage. She could have been 12 or maybe 14, which is still gross at this point because uh, I think John was 34, or she could have been as young as 9. Isabella came from cash money and had access to land that John was thirsty for, but Isabella was already betrothed when John claimed her as his own. She was betrothed to a wealthy family known as the Lusignons. This offense resulted in many uprisings. How dare you steal our child bride for yourself? 
Time to stab you, monsieur. The Lusignan family takes this matter to Philip, and Philip summons King John to court in Paris. John refuses to go. Philip threatens him and says he is in clear violation of the treaty and must attend or he will start fucking his shit up. John says he isn't in violation and he refuses to attend while hastily trying to impregnate his child bride. Disgusting. This is a final straw for Philip. He is more or less like, fine, fuck you, that I'm giving my full support to Arthur as king. In 1202, King Philip announced that John had forfeited the Plantagenet fiefs in France. He knighted Arthur and declared him John's successor in Anjou, Maine, and Poitou. Arthur did Philip homage in July. He invaded Poitou, while Philip attacked Normandy. At the end of the month, Arthur and his Poitevin allies were at Mirabeau, north of Poitiers, where they trapped Eleanor of Aquitaine in the castle keep. John's men stormed the castle at daybreak, rescued the indomitable Eleanor, and captured Arthur and two of the Lusignons. It is unclear what Arthur's plans were in kidnapping his grandmother, but my god, guys, I am tired of all this talk about women being abducted, constantly. Are you tired? Because I'm tired. And Lord knows Eleanor was tired at this point. She was near 80 years old, or she was 80, about the time of this um, abduction attempt. Perhaps Arthur was not uh, planning to murder her. He might have been likely trying to keep her a captive while making demands that he gets to be king. You know, typical trauma Tuesday night at the old Plantagenet Angevin household. Maybe it was Arthur's youth that made him so reckless, but attempting to capture Eleanor was a dumb move. This woman had been on crusade and had thwarted how many abduction attempts at this point? Like, too many to count, man. She probably knew that Arthur was coming for her, and she sent word to John. After the failed attack, Arthur was seized by William de Breos, Lord of Brecon, who delivered him to John. Arthur was then restrained in some pretty gnarly medieval chains, and taken to Normandy and imprisoned at Falaise. Arthur's captivity was probably less than comfortable, despite his rank and familial relationship. According to historian William Marshall, John kept his prisoners in such a horrible manner and such abject confinement that it seemed an indignity and disgrace to all those with him who witnessed his cruelty. Some accounts say that Arthur never left Falaise once imprisoned there, but there is more to this story and other theories. According to 13th century chronicler Ralph of Cockshall, while Arthur was imprisoned, King John sent orders to Hubert de Brew to castrate and blind him, as this would end any future threats. Hubert is said to have refused to mutilate Arthur, and spread rumors that Arthur had passed away from natural causes. The following year, Arthur was moved to Roan Castle, where his new prison guard, William de Breos, was the same man who presented Arthur to John in prison chains. This dude was really horrible. He was considered a favorite of King John's, and prior to his favoritism, he was responsible for the murder of three Welsh princes. Another theory is that John was advised by his mother Eleanor to make peace with Arthur, that they met at Rowan Castle, and Arthur apparently got an attitude with John, and John became so enraged that he murdered him on the spot. 
later throwing the body in the river Seine, and that his body was later found by peasants, who buried him in a local priory. I believe Arthur was likely killed at Rowan Castle over Falaise. John is reported as giving title in Irish land to William after Arthur went missing, and years later, William's wife, uh, Maud de Breos, accused King John and William of the murder of Arthur. And after this accusation, John had her and their eldest son imprisoned and starved to death at Windsor Castle. I understand speaking ill of the king was an act of treason, but if it was false, why not just punish her quickly or just ignore it? No, John wanted to make her suffer, likely because it was true. Whether it was William's hand or John's hand, he was ultimately responsible for the death of his nephew. John's violence and disdain towards his blood relatives did not end here. Remember I mentioned that Arthur had an older sister named Eleanor? Well, as I mentioned many times before, women were not seen as a threat to the crown, but that's not entirely true. For one, women were always a threat to men's power, which is why they kept them from it as much as they could. But the fact that Eleanor was still elder child to uh, his dead brother Joffrey and had claim to French territory, it freaked John the fuck out. A potential threat is still a threat. At the time of Arthur's assumed murder in 1203, John did not have any offspring. Most historians assume that Eleanor, fair maid of Brittany, I do love that name, was taken prisoner in 1202. As a prisoner, she was unable to press her claim to the Duchy of Brittany and claim it as her mother's heiress. Much like her namesake, Eleanor was kept in rich medieval prison. She could walk the castle grounds, heavily guarded, of course, and was given ladies and presents while locked up. A grocery list survives from the time of Eleanor's imprisonment that asks for lavish dishes of the time, which were mutton, pork, egrete, almonds, honey, ale, eels, and herring, to name a few. Eleanor was kept a prisoner well after King John's death in 1216. He had told his son and heir, another Henry, that Eleanor must be kept contained. She remained imprisoned for 39 years. The Chronicle of Lanercost claims that a remorseful Henry III had given a gold crown to Eleanor to legitimize himself and his descendants shortly before her death. She is then reported as giving the crown to Prince Edward, the future Edward I, Longshanks, asshole guy from Braveheart. Many would consider John's imprisonment of his niece as his most unforgivable act. I would have to personally agree, but John was no better than his brother Richard or any of the Plantagenet Angevin clan. Life only continued to get worse for John, as he lost a lot of territory in France, which resulted in the end of the Angevin Empire. Loss of land is considered a sign of a failed monarch in the eyes of English history. Historian Ralph Turner describes John as distasteful and dangerous. John was known for being volatile, much like the rest of his family, and would often gnaw and bite at his own flesh when frustrated. John's negative qualities provided material for fiction writers of the Victorian era, as well as inspired Shakespeare some years prior. 
In Western culture, John is portrayed as a villain, especially in the many Robin Hood adaptations. As much as I do not like John, this idea that one monarch could be trash and not the rest of them seems unfair. Don't get me wrong, like, John was a dickhead, but he was just one of many. His brother Richard, Coeur de Lyon, is portrayed as a hero, and he absolutely was not. Just as wicked and maybe even a little bit worse than John, in my opinion. Basically, all of Eleanor's sons, with the exception of the infant William, were awful people. John was cultured and literate. He traveled a lot throughout England, giving him a knowledge of the land matched by very few monarchs before. And this is pretty true. Not a lot of monarchs, even after uh, King John, ever did any extensive travel, which is a little weird to me, but I think it's probably a security thing. John was also the first king of England since the Norman Conquest who could speak English. There is a scene in the 1968 film Lion in Winter of the three princes, John, Geoffrey, and Richard, where one of them accuses John of being stupid, and he responds with, I'm not stupid, I speak three languages. I bring this up because many people equate wickedness and cruelty with being uneducated, and that is wildly incorrect. Monarchs and the rich were some of the most educated people for much of history, and they were responsible for many atrocities. There is also this idea that people in the Middle Ages were stupid or just didn't know any better. Also untrue. If one is referring to peasantry, well, you cannot fault a group of people uh, who were denied access to wealth and knowledge for being uneducated. This was a society that viewed education as something only attainable for the wealthy. Denying access to higher learning was and is intentional. So I realized that this episode was more so about the Plantagenet family with a focus on Eleanor and Henry's children, but it is difficult to tell Arthur's story without going into any detail about his family. The many people whose actions and choices affected the outcome of his short life. We know so little about Arthur as a person that we cannot determine what kind of king he would have been. We can deduce, though, from the behavior of his family that he likely would have been no better than the rest. But there is also the possibility that the Angevin Empire would not have ended when it did, and that England would have hung on to their French territories much longer. There would have been a stronger French influence on monarchy and England than there is now but it's not for sure. The fact that Arthur's death remains a mystery only proves that those responsible for his death was the monarchy itself, his family. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode. The sources I used for this uh, episode, uh, starting with the websites first, were Britannica, historicuk.com, BBC History, and EnglishMonarchs.co, and the following YouTube channels, which were History Extra, Ted Ed, Real Crusades History, and Biographics. And the following films were the 1968 Lion in Winter with the super badass uh, Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor, and, <laughs> and Disney's Robin Hood, which is the only Robin Hood I will watch. The rest are just so, so bad. 
I'd also like to give a shout out to uh, Queen's Podcast, who has, um, they have an excellent three-part episode on Eleanor of Aquitaine. So if you want to learn more about her, I definitely recommend checking that out. I listened to that one before I started researching anything, and it was a lot of fun. They have some great episodes there. Um, it is available via Spotify and other listening platforms. If you like what you hear, feel free to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Be sure to tune in for my next episode, which will air on Valentine's Day, February 14th, where I will be discussing courtly love, also known as L'Amour Courtois. I have already been preparing for it by listening to some real cool troubadour jams. So, who's the coolest podcaster you know? <laughs> As always, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay curious. Bye-bye.